a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you've ever seriously considered becoming part of the pro-freedom conspiracy, but I'm here to extend an invitation to you. Come, join us. Find courage, find camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and reclaim your mind as your own. That doesn't mean you have to march in lockstep with me or anybody else, but it does mean we have to think a little harder and think a little more independently and clearly about the world around us. Not an easy task, given all the mis- given all the misinformation and uh, just flat-out propaganda coming at us at any given time. Well, this program is uh, one of many out there uh, helping you find good, credible, timely information based in principle rather than simply partisanship or seeking some perceived political advantage. I've got some great sponsors who make this possible. I want to thank them quickly as we begin. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. Well, it's a, it's a great day. How do I know this? Because I have a double dose of James Bovard for you today. I'm talking about a couple of different things. I, I spend as little time as possible talking about events and personalities in Washington, D.C., although they do come up from time to time. Sometimes it's, it's just it's on enough people's minds or there's something that's groundbreaking enough. It's worth bringing it up. And, of course, the vaccine mandates that uh, uh, the, the argument for vaccine mandates heard before the Supreme Court, that's something that's been on a lot of people's minds. And apparently the, the vax mandates ha- suffered a pretty well-deserved setback in the Supreme Court, at least the uh, workplace mandates. But uh, for healthcare workers, the court allowed that to stand. I've got Jim Bovard's take on this. He says it's time to end those uh, vax mandates for healthcare workers, especially when you have COVID positive nurses allowed to work, but the unvaccinated aren't. Jim Bovard says the Supreme Court on Friday will hear challenges. This was published last week, by the way. We'll hear challenges to Joe Biden's uh, vaccine mandates, including his order for more than 10 million healthcare workers to get COVID-19 vaccine injections. That mandate was challenged by numerous state attorneys general. It could be a bellwether case on the fate of civil liberties during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the Biden administration has consistently portrayed vaccines as a pandemic panacea. I'm sure you've, you've heard me talk about this. You've heard others talk about back in July, Biden promised you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccines. When he announced plans to impose the mandate in a September 9th speech, Biden declared there's only one confirmed positive case per 5,000 fully vaccinated Americans per day. You're as safe as possible. Now, Biden's vastly overstated vaccine efficacy, in part because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stopped counting the vast majority of breakthrough infections several months earlier back in May. The Washington Post reported that the CDC's overly rosy assessments of the vaccine's effectiveness against the Delta variant may have lulled Americans into a false sense of security. 
see, here's the truth that remains. Vaccines will not end this pandemic. Bovard writes more than half a million healthcare workers have already had COVID-19 infections and more than 99% of them survived. However, the Biden mandate presumes that vaccines are the sole source of good health and protection and ignored post-infection immunity because of perceived uncertainties as to the strength and length of natural immunity. Now, he also points out, however, a major Israeli study back in August found people who had COVID-19 have far better protection against the Delta variant than people who have received multiple COVID-19 vaccine injections. Gee, that's a that's an inconvenient truth. I mean, that's the kind of truth to get YouTube looking at me. Hey, hey, Brian, this goes against our community standards. Hey, it may be reality, but, you know, the community standards are no one may question. According to a brief from the states of Missouri and Nebraska, Biden's mandate threatens economic ruin and patient harm throughout the healthcare industry and will have disastrous consequences on healthcare, particularly in rural communities. Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry derided the Biden administration for giving healthcare workers a jab or job ultimatum. And the Federal Register notice on the new mandate dismissed concerns about the loss of health care staff because there is insufficient evidence to quantify the impact. Yeah, except the headlines that we see on a regular basis saying we don't have enough workers. We're we're under. Actually, they won't say we're understaffed. They will say we're overwhelmed. Giving the impression that it's the number of of patients that are being admitted to the hospital is the number of people who are sick with covid that's overwhelmed us and not the fact that uh, we've made the decision to fire those who refuse to give in to the ultimatum. Also, Biden is responding to shortages of critical personnel by planning to send in a 1,000 U.S. military personnel to assist hospitals. I mean, there's some great reasoning in this article as to all the reasons why these mandates don't make sense. And it sounds like, in part, the Supreme Court at least uh, was, was willing to hear... And, and respond to common sense on the uh, vaccine mandate for companies over 100 employees, saying that's, that's just not going to work. But it's still, it's a mixed bag as far as good news. It's, the Supreme Court heard the case, which gives some legitimacy in some ways to the idea that, you know, well, the federal government really should be doing this. And it sounds very much like the door was left open where a better written mandate could come back and possibly have the chance of being upheld by the court. And, of course, by the courts upholding that, well, but health care workers, they don't get to choose whether or not, you know, they, they have a say in their own health care. That's a very bad, bad precedent. Bovard points out in its brief to the Supreme Court, the Biden administration declared the vaccine mandate was critical to preventing outbreaks of COVID-19 that had devastated Medicare and Medicaid participating facilities earlier in the pandemic. But two weeks ago, the CDC changed its previous guidance on healthcare workers isolating after testing positive for COVID-19 and said that quarantine time could be cut even further if there are staffing shortages. Now some COVID-19 positive nurses across the country are being told, yeah, come on in and work and treat patients even if you still have symptoms. Hello? <laughs> they can still spread the virus. Oh, boy. 
Well, according to the Biden administration policies, well, it's better for these hospital patients to be treated by COVID positive nurses and workers whose COVID-19 vaccinations failed to safeguard them from the virus than by unvaccinated nurses who don't have COVID. And that new policy outraged nurses across the nation. Zene Trinufo, let me try that again, Triunfo Cortez, president of National Nurses United, denounced the new policy saying, weakening COVID-19 guidance now in the face of what could be the most devastating COVID-19 surge yet will only result in further transmission illness, and death. So Bovard points out here, vaccination status has gone from being a proxy for health to being a substitute for sane health care policy. And the the Biden COVID-19 policy continues to ignore a torrent of evidence that undercuts its mandates. So the bottom line is, look, vaccines can provide protection against COVID-19 for the elderly and for high-risk groups, but there's insufficient evidence to justify forcibly injecting the nation at large. Almost a year ago, Biden promised in his inaugural address to overcome this deadly virus. Yet last month, crashing on the hard rocks of reality, Biden admitted there is no federal solution to COVID-19. This gets solved at the state level. And by the way, don't think that state governments have the ability to outwit a virus as well. They can put words on paper, but a virus is going to do what a virus is going to do. And Bovard says Biden's admission provides ample justification for the Supreme Court to reject Biden's latest iron-fisted wild swing to end the pandemic. See, and there's still people arguing, well, now, you know, don't don't hesitate to get vaccinated. It's not going to hurt you any more than stopping at a red light. We are a community. We rely on others to do the right and responsible thing. Yeah, here's the difference, though. When I stop at a red light, it may be because there's cross traffic and it's for the sake of safety. That's great. But when I take the jab, that's something that is irreversible. I've put something into my body. I have I have participated in something that actually is changing my uh, my body's genetic code. How do you reverse that? How do you get unstuck if you decide that uh, hey maybe this isn't uh, this isn't the thing that my body needed? You know the answer. It's it's you don't. So it's the all important choice of whether or not to be vaccinated as opposed to the vaccine itself. It's the forcing people that is causing all this pushback. Why can't they see that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, I've got some great news. My sponsor, LifesavingFood.com, has uh, upped his discount to 20%. This is on food storage orders, and there's a lot of great food storage um, items, packages, deals to choose from. Uh, but but keep in mind, inflation is at work. Okay, Prices are going to be going up and continuing to go up. So th- you're, you're going to get the best prices the sooner that you, the sooner that you act, the sooner you can, you can save that money. It's not going to get cheaper. I'm sorry, that's... 
if that seems like a high-pressure technique, I, I don't know what to tell you other than the reality is prices are continuing to go up, and there's no better time to get prepared than right this moment. Take that as you will. I'm not encouraging you to live in fear, but if you decide, yeah, we should probably bolster our food storage program, consider doing it through my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right. I wanted to share this one from James Bovard on how pro-democracy media, pro-democracy and polarizing media, rather, are the real threat to liberty. This is a real, this is a real sticking point for me. And I've actually been asked, I I interviewed with a a major uh, station in Salt Lake City here a couple of years ago, actually went and auditioned and um, thought I might actually have a a line on a, a position with them. And one of the things that uh, the the interviewer asked was, it seems like you have kind of a bone to pick with legacy media. And at the time, I was like, well, I do in the sense that legacy media seems to to, uh, work with the powers that be and and, um, enable the powers that be. I'm just trying to speak the truth. And, uh, you know, it turns out I do have beef (laughs) with, with the legacy media. And it's more from the standpoint, I just don't I don't want to be deceived. And I resent people who think that they can either browbeat or somehow manipulate me into uh, believing things that simply are not true. So, Bovard says, American democracy is in grave peril because journalists are insufficiently hysterical and biased. That's the conclusion of a trio of Washington Post columnists and a panoply of other medical experts. But journalists rush to the barricades, risks opening the floodgates to new abuses of government power. So Washington Post columnist Perry Bacon Jr. last week called for a pro-democracy media, vigorously describing longstanding Republican tactics such as aggressive gerrymandering as dangers to democracy. In fact, Bacon frets because gun-shy editors failed to denounce Republican radicalism in banner headlines. Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan declared that American democracy is teetering, is unquestionable, due to pro-Trump Republicans requiring a new pro-democracy emphasis to be articulated clearly and fearlessly to readers and viewers. And post-columnist Brian Klass admits that the media adopting a pro-democracy bias effectively means being pro-democratic party. But there is no alternative except to unequivocally and unapologetically condemn Republicans. James Bovard says journalists can't demonize one political party without tacitly sainting its opponents. And even worse, pro-democracy cheerleading can quickly become cravenly pro-government. Now, this danger is stark, he says, with the growing enthusiasm for official crackdowns on alleged misinformation, which sometimes simply means that that's data that expose federal falsehoods or abuses. In a recent report, the Aspen Institute, one of Washington's most revered think tanks, calls for the Biden administration to establish a comprehensive strategic approach to countering disinformation and the spread of misinformation, including, are you ready for this, a centralized national response strategy, defining roles and responsibilities across the executive branch. Law professor Jonathan Turley condemned the report's full-throated endorsement of systems of censorship by government. But the Washington Post loved the call for crackdowns, endorsing the Aspen report with an editorial headline, America is sick with information disorder. Time for a cure. And how do we know Americans are sick? 
Well, because they distrust President Joe Biden and the feds. And the cure is more federal power and more censorship. Now, Bovard asks, how does pro-democracy reporting work in practice? Journalists can provide readers with a catechism specifying correct beliefs rather than providing facts by which citizens can reach their own conclusions. But the Washington Press Corps was aptly described decades ago as stenographers with amnesia. And the political philosophy of most reporters doesn't go beyond orange man bad. Do we need the same journalists who hailed Governor Andrew Cuomo as a savior for his heavy-handed COVID lockdowns returning for an encore to save democracy? A laudatory 2020 New Yorker profile touted Andrew Cuomo, King of New York. Entertainment Weekly hailed Cuomo as the hero that America never realized it needed. The New York Post, by the way, dissented. Cuomo's reign ended in a swirl of criminal investigations and outrage over his cover-up of thousands of nursing home deaths his policies caused. And the media's coverage of the 2020 election would qualify as pro-democracy reporting at its best. Time Magazine national political correspondent Molly Ball boasted early last year of the well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election, she says. They were fortifying it. Well, how do we know it was fortified and not rigged? Well, because Biden won. Now, after the 2016 presidential election, the Post-Sullivan bewailed the media's ridiculous emphasis put on every development around Hillary Clinton's illegal email practices. For the 2020 election campaign, liberal media found a pro-democracy solution for one potential bombshell. Twitter banned the New York Post for reporting the incriminating foreign payoffs exposed on Hunter Biden's laptop. But most media outlets pretended the laptop was just a Russian ploy, thereby shielding the Biden family corruption controversies from voters. He says nothing could be more perilous to the truth than encouraging journalists to pirouette as saviors when they grovel to the powers that be. Pro-democracy press is a threat to liberty because it will ignore or downplay abuses committed by purportedly pro-democracy rulers. So rather than rigorously scrutinizing Biden's proposals, the media presume his pursuit of vast power is simply proof of his benevolence. James Bovard says pro-democracy reporting will be uplift at its worst. It's no harmless error to portray politicians, or at least Democrats, as more honest and honorable than they are. The Biden administration has signaled plans to make both the FBI and the IRS far more intrusive. Will pro-democracy media outlets refrain from mentioning past constitutional debacles by those agencies? Will it be pro-democracy to pretend new scandals don't actually exist? That recipe worked for the media and for President Barack Obama. He says the Hunter Biden laptop recipe for saving democracy is the latest crock from the media elite. Journalists are not fit to serve as grand inquisitors who spoon-feed their beliefs to docile readers and viewers. Instead, he says the press should vigorously investigate and expose federal crimes, regardless of who is president. I agree with him completely. And yet it seems that the press still expects to be taken seriously. That heritage mass media still thinks, oh, no, no, we tell you what to think, and that's what you're supposed to repeat. 
And people who don't, well, they're labeled as fringe. They're put to the margins of society. And you have a lot of people actually advocating for their silencing or their censorship. Look, I don't want to sound like a Joe Rogan fanboy, but I do find a certain satisfaction that Joe Rogan, who, you know, by most accounts is a pretty simple, down-to-earth guy. You know, he's he's a comedian. He's a mixed martial artist. He's a commentator. Definitely the guy has some talent, but his greatest talent and perhaps his greatest contribution to mankind is he simply has an open mind and a platform in which he invites people to speak their minds, and he lets them. And his ratings eclipse most of any the, any of the major media outlets. That should tell you he's doing something right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I get to wear a lot of hats in the course of my week, and one of the things that I absolutely relish is the opportunity to work with an organization called Young Voices. And I've met a lot of uh, incredible young um, content creators out there and contributors for Young Voices. I have uh, one of those gentlemen with me now, Caleb Franz. And Caleb, let's first of all, let's fill in a little bit more of your pedigree. I'm sure I've only touched on a couple of things. You're a Young Voices contributor as well as wearing some other hats. And then we're going to talk about another project that you have been deeply involved in. But first, tell us about yourself. Well, uh, thank you, Brian, uh, for for having me back on the uh, the program here. I think the last time I was I was on, we were we were here talking about the last little project that we had uh, going on. Um, but yes, I, I am the uh, program manager at, at Young Voices, and for those who don't know, Young Voices is this great organization where we get to work with um, with young people, generally between the ages of eighteen and thirty-five. Uh, to, to help uh, build up their their skills as a communicator and uh, help boost up the resume uh, and try to cultivate the next generation of thought leaders in the liberty movement. Uh, and I like to think that so far we've done a, a pretty decent job at that and hopefully uh, we'll continue to, to do so in the future. Um, and then, of course, as you alluded to, uh, one of my other uh, hats that I wear is I'm also a uh, a podcaster like yourself, and I have uh, been working on the second season for my uh, newer show. It's it's uh, been around for a few months now, but uh, called Profiles in Liberty, uh, and this is a history show where I go into certain individuals uh, throughout uh, throughout history that I think uh, are worthy of inspiration, and I think that they can teach us some certain valuable lessons that can, we can apply to uh, today as we're sort of navigating all the all the different aspects of, of the ideas of liberty in our own time. Uh, and I think they have some very valuable lessons to uh, to instill on us. So I want to make sure that uh, the, those individuals are are highlighted and and able to inspire us uh, some more. Excellent. Caleb, congratulations, by the way, on a successful, you know, first season and now launching into season two. Um, before we talk about what you have coming up in terms of um, what this season's going to cover, um, remind us, if you will, what was what was the focus of the first season of Profiles in Liberty? Yeah, so the first season was um, I, I launched it on uh, the weekend of July 4th, and it was all about uh, I, I picked eight signers of the Declaration of Independence, 
um, that I, I wanted to particularly highlight. Um, obviously, just being a signer in and of itself is is not necessarily – that doesn't mean that you're necessarily um, someone to automatically look up to, even though that act by, by itself was, I think, a, a rather admirable act. Um, but but these were individuals who, who went above and beyond uh, the call of duty of, of putting their, their pen to paper uh, on, uh, on that special occasion. Uh, and, for example, the first person I, I dived into was uh, Thomas Jefferson, which we touched on uh, quite a bit. And, and the last time I was here on the, on the program and, and sort of uh, diving into his legacy with uh, not just liberty, but also his, his complicated legacy with uh, slavery. And I think there have been uh, some misconceptions and, and, um, and certainly individuals who, who don't like him as much like to, like to inflate those misconceptions. So I, I wanted to try to set the record straight as much as I could. Uh, we also went over some some other individuals I have a lot of respect for, such as Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, and some lesser known individuals like George Wythe, who was uh, Thomas Jefferson's mentor, um, a really cool guy, uh, as well as uh, people like Caesar Rodney and, and individuals like that, Benjamin Rush. Um, all of these episodes in the last uh, season, this this first season. Uh, highlighted on on these men and and that they were they were not these like special superhuman characters they were they were regular people who just so happened to live in these extraordinary times and instead of falling by the wayside or instead of bucking the responsibility they took it upon themselves to say we're going to take this matter into our own hands and we're going to demand our liberty and not politely ask for it and that is something that I think that we can all sort of look up to, especially in, in a lot of the times that we're uh, that that we find ourselves in today. Amen, bro. Tell me about season two. Where are you going to take us in season two of Profiles in Liberty? So I feel like season two is almost like a natural progression um, of, of of the first season. Uh, the first season we we touched on the signers and the people who made the promise of America. Uh, the, the promise that all men are, are created equal, they're endowed with, uh, by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Um, and if, if those men made that promise, season two touches on the, the men and the women who sort of fulfilled that promise. Uh, so the first, uh, the first episode that we're going to be going into uh, for this season is going to be on, on Frederick Douglass. Nice. Uh, and, uh, and he is a an amazing character. I, I think that if, if, if anyone defines uh, what it means to be an American, or at least defines the ideas of America, I would probably put uh, Thomas Jefferson up there as, as one of the first. Um, but then not far behind him is, is Frederick Douglass, uh, because uh, this is a guy who uh, took matters into his own hands. He took his freedom for himself uh, and then whenever he, you know, you have this abolitionist movement uh, around the time that, that he got involved politically, uh, that he got involved with, and they were all saying that the Constitution was the reason why slavery, slavery is able to exist. And he believed that until he actually read the Constitution and looked into what it is that the founders actually had to say 
uh, about slavery. And of course, there were some compromises that were made in order to preserve the Union at the time. But but Frederick Douglass realized that, no, this idea of America, it, it wasn't meant to keep people in chains. It was meant to, to, to liberate all people uh, at some point. And, and the founders sort of understood their own limitations. But Frederick Douglass knew that that wasn't a matter of, of choice or preference. That was a matter of the, the limitations of their own time. And in order to, to best fulfill the promise of 1776, it meant uh, a, an, an abolitionist constitution uh, was, was absolutely necessary. I, I think uh, Frederick Douglass is one of the great uh, sources of wisdom about what freedom is and what it isn't. Because having mm-hmm. been in slavery, I mean, he can tell you what the uh, yes. antithesis of, of freedom yes. is. Who are some of the other personalities that you're going to be exploring during this upcoming season? So uh, so the first, uh, just to kind of give you an idea of how I, how I approach this season, um, obviously February is, is Black History Month, and then uh, March is also Women's History Month. And I, I wanted to use those uh, events as, as sort of a rallying cry of, of where are these individuals that, that we can kind of bounce on and, and, and talk about uh, throughout these specific occasions. Asians and, and Frederick Douglass was the first one that, that came to mind. Um, later on the season, we're going to touch on uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, and uh, and then eventually we're going to get into some some uh, women who who had a substantial impact on the ideas of liberty, like Abigail Adams, uh, as well as one of my favorites, uh, which was uh, Mercy Otis Warren, is is going to sort of wow. wrap us up toward the end of the season. And, and there are a few others uh, as well, uh, but I think that that's kind of a, a, a good tease to, <laughs> to let us, uh, let us marinate on that and, and see where we can uh, see where we can go from there. Caleb, what's the advantage that comes from, from taking a deeper dive into history and particularly the people um, who, who've had impact? You know, I think that a lot of the things that uh, a lot of these people went through, obviously, they were very specific uh, to to their specific cases. Uh, but a lot of the things that they went to can give us very valuable insights into a lot of things that we are dealing with uh, today. Obviously, we don't have to deal with slavery or uh, the gender dynamics of, of the 1780s or 90s or, or, or whatever uh, that may be. Um, but there are certain insights, certain universal truths that they understood uh, that we can still apply to all, all, the, all the threats that we face today uh, around the threats of, of liberty. And that's what I hope that people uh, realize when they're listening to these episodes. And that's why I hope uh, that they get inspired by when they're learning about these, these figures uh, throughout, throughout history. Okay, let's point folks in the right direction. Where can they go to hear your podcast? Do you have a website to go with it? Yeah, so uh, Profiles in Liberty is part of the We Are Libertarians podcasting network. Uh, You can find all the episodes there as well as anywhere where you get your podcasts at. Um, And then on Twitter, I am uh, at Caleb Franz. It's pretty easy to to find. I got the first and last name, so I got pretty lucky there. Uh, And yeah, you can just reach out. And and, uh, if you want to talk more about some history, I'm I'm all, all ears. Okay. It's a, it's a great show. I highly recommend it to my listeners who want to, again, know a little bit more about, uh, you know, the people and, and events and decisions that got us where we are. Caleb Franz, thank you so much for being my guest today. Hey, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would encourage you to check out the show notes that I publish on a daily basis every day that I do this program. I put together a collection of a number of articles and a few annotations of my own, just some thoughts on the passing scene. And it's not because, you know, these are the answers to all the questions that, uh, you know, that plague mankind at this time. It's just a source or a resource, I should say, for people who are looking for good information that's based in reality and not so much trying to convince you that uh, this party is great and that party is nothing more than, you know, dog poop. It's it's such a crazy atmosphere out there for anybody who's serious about trying to get information to better understand the world. And your work is cut out for you. If you wait for somebody to tell you what to think, I'm sorry, there's no nice way to say this. You're going to be misled. You're going to be led by the nose wherever somebody wants to lead you. And you're better than that. I'm better than that. We've got to be our own fact checkers. And, and nothing illustrates this better than looking at how the fact checkers go after those who challenge the predominant narrative. In fact, you look at the amount of effort that's being put into trying to prop up, for instance, the failing COVID narrative. It's impressive. If someone were to harness that kind of energy and put it in a productive direction, I mean, you, the problems you could solve, you could be building, you know, communities. You could be, you know, sheltering the, the homeless, feeding the hungry, liberating the captive. But instead, all that effort is going into trying to prevent people from noticing things that they're not supposed to notice because it would be inconvenient or it would shake their belief or their faith in those people in power. A good case of this would be uh, Jordan Schachtel. He's got a great uh, substack, and he's currently being targeted by the regime's fact-checkers over his reporting on Big Pharma's inconsistencies. Now, I don't know what Schachtel's policy, you know, what his politics are. I do know that this guy's writing is uh, very truth-oriented in the sense that he presents facts more so than judgment, so he's, he's letting his readers make up their minds what it means. But if you want to see what modern spin doctoring looks like, Snopes is now going after Jordan Schachtel. He says, Snopes, a fact-checking, in quotation marks, site that operates solely to defend powerful institutions from legitimate scrutiny, is now coming after me for reporting the facts. The website has a new piece out titled, Did Pfizer CEO Say Two-Dose Vaccine Gives Little Protection Against COVID-19? Now, Schachtel's story in the dossier from earlier this week is referenced. In the story, he simply repeated what the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, said verbatim about his own products. And here's an excerpt, you know, from that. Two doses of the vaccine offers very limited protection, if any, against COVID-19, Borla said, adding three doses with a booster offer reasonable protection against hospitalization and deaths, less protection against infection. Now, again, these are verbatim quotes from Borla. Now, Snopes claims my story is mostly false because I didn't distinguish between Omicron and other previous variants of COVID-19. 
Snopes writes, Borlo was referring specifically to infection from the Omicron variant of COVID-19, not COVID-19 in general. In their fact check, Snopes claims the shot is still effective against the previous variants of COVID-19. So Borla was somehow misrepresented here. And he has a screenshot of, you know, the, the mostly false rating from Snopes. The website concluded Borla wasn't saying his vaccine couldn't fight off COVID-19 in general, and those who claimed as much were grossly misrepresenting what he said, the meaning of which is made entirely clear when viewed in its proper context. Now, Schachtel says, look, Snopes is spreading a bald-faced lie through admission here, omission here, rather, as they're confusing their audience into believing that many people are acquiring this thing separate from Omicron called COVID-19 in general. He says there's little to no separation between the Omicron variant and the virus that causes COVID-19 as a broader category. Omicron now accounts for over 95% of new sequenced cases. Therefore, Omicron is COVID-19 and COVID-19 is Omicron. If the shots work for the previous strains, it's an irrelevant point because Omicron is increasingly becoming the only strain in town. He actually has a tweet here. This is from uh, uh, WJC, WJZ, rather, CBS Baltimore, reporting that the Omicron variant made up around 95.4% of new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. last week. That's from the CDC's numbers and estimates. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, look, in my piece, I referenced how Borla's recent comments were a dramatic departure from his earlier claims that the shots are akin to a miracle cure. Snopes never addressed that part. And here's the tweet from Albert Borla. This is from April, 20, April 1st of 2021. Excited to share that updated analysis from our Phase 3 study with BioNTech also showed that our COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 cases in South Africa. 100%! Now, Schachtel says, notably in marketing its shots, Pfizer never warned of declining efficacy due to potential variants. And he says, as we've discussed at the dossier, shots were originally sold as a two- or one-and-done cure, not a seasonal injection protocol. The idea that the shots would stop working with later mutations was not at all part of the conversation until very recently. So the verdict is in. He says, I rate Snopes as mostly fake news. Oh, look, here's a tweet here. Snopes founder, CEO, co-owner wrote dozens of plagiarized articles for the site, often using a fake name with a fake bio to hoard traffic. Snopes, which is fact-checked for Facebook for two years to combat misinformation, is literally fake news. I mean, I guess it's to be expected, right? If you exist to try to, to protect the powers that be, you know, they've, they've hired their own court uh, historians, if you will, to rewrite the history, to gaslight people. And the sophistry that goes into this. I mean, for, for people who aren't really familiar with, with the sophists, you're going to have to go back and, and uh, read, read Plato. <laughs> read about uh, Socrates. The sophists were these learned people whose job wasn't so much to find truth, but to, to complicate and twist things and muddy the waters into plausible-sounding explanations that nonetheless weren't false. 
or weren't true, that, that were, were based on uh, manipulation of words or, or twisting of ideas or, you know, misleading through omission of facts to, to get people to come to faulty conclusions. There's a lot of that sophistry going on today. And by the way, it's not, it's not all left-wing. The right has its sophists as well. So the question pops up, how do, you, how do you immunize yourself against that kind of manipulation? I mean, people saying, we have an information disorder, a misinformation disorder, and it's time to, you know, to shut it down. I can think of no other way to describe that attitude other than, look, there's information out there that makes those in power nervous because it undermines whatever case they're trying to state for why they need control over you, your life, your finances, your employment, how and where you shop, what you think, what, who you associate with, and so forth. And the sad truth is there are a lot of people who are either going along out of fear because, well, I'm just trying to do my part. I know it's scary and there's a virus out there and we all have to sacrifice something to try to, to uh, mitigate its spread. But it totally ignores that there are proper limits for what government should be doing. And when it steps over the line, somebody needs to speak out and say something. Unfortunately, when you do, you know, you're, you're going to be attacked for it. We need truth tellers. And not everybody wants to sit down and write a substack. Not everybody wants to stand up and be counted. But I suspect that there are more than a few people within the sound of my voice who feel this inexplicable tug in their heart to speak up or to speak out because they recognize something isn't right. And it's not because they have delusions of grandeur and they're like, you know, I'm here to save the world. They don't have a savior complex. What they have is enough perception and discernment that they can see the way that the world is compared to the way the world could be. And that gap, for whatever reason, pulls at their heart and motivates them to try to do something that actually helps people. Right now, we need people who are willing to speak the truth, but it takes courage to do it. I'm not going to tell you it's not hard. I'm just going to say it's worth doing it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where the battle for your mind is fought on a daily basis. But here's the thing. I don't want to take over your mind. I'm encouraging you to plant the flag, claim it as your own, and then resolve to think as clearly and independently as you can about the world around you. Now, that takes effort. 
That takes sustained effort, and it takes uh, not a small amount of courage, but I'm here to provide some encouragement and hopefully a little bit of inspiration and some good, solid, credible, nonpartisan, principle-based, reality-connected info to help you win in that never-ending quest for clarity. I've got some great sponsors who make the show possible on a daily basis. They include GovernYourIncome.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Also, a shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I'm a big fan of Alan Stevo, and I think that uh, he has done a lot to help people find their backbone and find the courage to stand, particularly in the face of mask mandates and and other things that are being forced upon us to try to to gain our compliance. I I know this is going to sound like I'm I'm paranoid and I'm willing to take that risk if you if you think that I'm you know pulling a chicken little the sky is falling you know kind of thing I get it, but it's it's really interesting to me that uh, the Biden administration in the last couple of days has made a great deal out of how, you know, we have uh, we have made it possible or we're going to make it possible to provide, you know, millions upon millions of face masks for Americans, like official approved masks. And maybe it's just because I have come to see face masks as more of an outward token of obedience and compliance than an actual protective or preventive measure. It just the the thing that that strikes me is ooh this is this is strange, is that now there's there's going to be some official version, some government approved version of the mask. And it makes me just a little bit suspicious that is that is that going to be the test, you know instead of wearing armbands to show your party loyalty or a red scarf to, you know to show that you are part of the red guard, you wear the mask the official government approved mask to show that you're in compliance. That just strikes me as really totalitarian. But back to, let's talk about the solution here. Alan Stevo gets a letter from a teacher in California who is talking about, hey, I want to, uh, I want to be an activist. I want to send your book, which has some great advice out to my school administrators. But she points out, or the teacher points out here, the people in my district are very fearful. They truly believe they're doing the right thing. I don't want to offend them or turn them against being willing to listen to the arguments. And Alan Stevo gives a pretty interesting pep talk here. He says, your actions are the mechanism by which your values are communicated to those around you. And he says, no one wearing a mask or getting a child to wear a mask has any interest in doing the right thing. In fact, he says, they're doing the cowardly thing. And almost exclusively, they recognize that. He says, I have yet to have a single in-depth conversation that says otherwise. Some of them are superficially true believers, but when you get the guard down and you really dig down with them on this topic, they understand. They're being cowardly. They will exchange many good things for the ability to not have to stand out from the group. That's the truth of the matter. So we have this entire society walking around equating personal convenience with morality. But he says, seldom are the two anything but polar opposites. And at this late hour, if you're concerned with turning people off from the truth, you're going to be missing the truth and aiming for those who have no interest in listening to you anyway. Yeah. So I guess the bottom line is, if you're not offending somebody, you're probably watering it down to the point that uh, it's, it's not really useful. 
But he says, in 1973, the people of the United States sold out morality in exchange for convenience with the legalization of infanticide. And this tells you everything you need to know about the United States that such a thing happened. The number of lies that spring from this detail are legion. For instance, on abortion, he says, I accepted the lie for years that the issue wasn't important or that I'm not entitled to a say in the matter. But he says, never again. Never again will I give a lie my tacit approval. And if that weren't bad enough, a closely correlated detail took place in August of 1971 when the dollar was decoupled with gold. Lies became the currency of the realm. Lies remain the currency of the realm. Now, he says something here that's really sobering. He says, I can turn lies into dollars all day. You could do the same. But to accomplish such a feat is not admirable. In fact, he says, being well-received by the cowardly is a bad goal. Almost nothing in this era stands in your way of that goal. All of society teaches you, by example, how to speak to the cowardly so that they can go through an entire conversation with you without feeling encouraged to act any differently than they already do. In contrast, such great effort must be put into speaking the truth. Even knowing the truth can be so very difficult. He says, if you can find ten dogged truth-tellers in the world around you, you're probably doing better in your social circle than I am. But the real work is just speaking truth. To concern yourself with offending with offending another promises you fail at speaking the truth. To concern yourself with speaking to the lowest common denominator guarantees to make you an intentional liar. One must not seek to be a servant to truth and lie at once because the master of the lower standards always wins that fight. So he tells this teacher, I thank you for not having fled the state of California. I want to thank you for fighting. In fact, he says many leave the battle prematurely, claiming to have given their all, claiming not to be waving the white flag of surrender to the most evil. But far from having given one all, he says, I believe one has not even earned the title of activist until one has had success and notoriety along these lines. And he does give a good example here. One enters a room and every muscle in every guilty local politician's body contracts when he hears your voice. Your name means something to him. He knows where you stand. He knows you are not a pushover and he reacts physically as much as he tries to hide it when he recognizes that you have entered a room. Many vocally complain about the awfulness of a place. Few truly, few truly commit themselves to that place and its improvement. Now, I've seen, this, uh, I've seen what this looks like in practice. Going to uh, legislative uh, committee hearings at uh, the state capitol in Utah and, and uh, watching Connor Boyack come into a room. He's the president of Libertas Institute. And depending on the issue, I can't remember... I can't remember what it was. The first time I was sitting there with him, um, and uh, sitting in a committee room, and he walked in there to to be a part of that to, that hearing, and you could feel it sucked the air out of the room when he walked in there. And you know, we're talking lobbyists and lawyers and lawmakers, but uh, when Connor came in there, because of his reputation for standing on principle, and I don't I don't care if you agree with him or disagree with him. The bottom line is, he has earned that respect and he has earned that reputation of being a very serious contender for liberty. And it was just kind of cool to, to see the conversations just <laughs> wow to a stop, you know, as soon as he came into the room. That's what you call being known for your principles. And that's a, that's a very powerful place to be. Now, Alan Stevo says, look, 
When you flee a state, he says, you are running away from what's more likely to be a problem in you than a problem in your surroundings. Now, I partially disagree with him on this, but I'll I'll humor him to, to hear out what he has to say. He says, if you are in that place as a true uh, citizen activist, for instance, involved in the civic life of his community to the extent that I've described, and you decide to leave a state, well, he says, okay, in that case, I will truly congratulate you. But until then, he says, I think you're wasting a perfectly good opportunity to train yourself and the world around you about what freedom looks like. The more dire, the more necessary that baptism. The more dire, the fiercer the fight. The more dire, the greater the victory. But listen to this next part. He says, God made you for a time and place such as that. Leave before you are that person. And I don't care how how wonderful you are on paper. You risk ruining the next place you move to, perhaps not with your politics, but with your entitled apathy, which is the more prevalent problem than bad politics or corrupt perspective or even rotten personal philosophy. In the United States of America, the silent majority goes about life silently, as if their values were worth closeting, and they're accordingly repaid the indignity of being bossed about by their their loudmouthed inferiors. So he urges, urges us not to be negligent, where there are opportunities for us to stand up and to speak up. Now, it's interesting, because in a subsequent segment here, we're going to talk about how people moving to small towns could very well be saving America. I'm going to come back to Alan Stevo's commentary, just the other side of our commercial break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, in fact, anywhere in the state of Utah, and you need a mortgage, a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe even want to refinance your existing home loan, please contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and she has the experience and the clout to get you the loan that you need and to do it quickly because time counts. It's such a competitive market right now. So I'm sharing this article here from Alan Stevo about how honest face-to-face conversations change the world. And this is less about how to, uh, how to you know, have, uh, I guess, how to, how to do the Dale Carnegie win friends, influence people thing, and more about how to speak the truth and not be so worried about, well, I don't really want to offend anybody. Look, your goal isn't to go out there and offend people, all right? You're not triumph the insult comic dog. But if you're going to have any kind of appreciable impact, you've got to be willing to risk offending people. That doesn't mean you have to be offensive in how you go about it. It just simply means if you're going to speak the truth, however gently, you need to speak the truth and be okay with the risk that somebody is going to have a knee-jerk reaction. 
Alan says, staying 100% friendly with a person in a position of influence will only get you so far, especially when they're not acting upon their stated values. And sometimes, he says, um, a person needs a dressing down, at least in private. Americans at the open of the year 2020 had inherited the right of entitled apathy, convinced that such a state of affairs will garner perpetual freedom. But by the close of the year, an ultra-minority of society who claimed neither entitlement nor apathy did the hard work of seizing the power from that power vacuum. So, as an example of what does it mean to have that uh, meaningful face-to-face conversation, Alan Stevel says, when I meet a patriot still wearing his mask, I point this out to him and politely dress him down before asking him to grow up and straighten up, at least before the whole thing is lost. Because he says, make no mistake, we're on a precipice from which this whole thing can be lost. Now, he says, activism itself has two important goals. Number one, to achieve your desired outcome, which is ideally greater freedom for yourself and those around you. And number two, to strengthen yourself, especially, as well as those people and systems you rely on around you to get things done. Now, he says, start close before you venture far. If it is possible, then he says, what I would do is begin with the people closest to you, friendliest to you, and most on board with what you're saying, who have a position of influence. So sending a book in the mail to a stranger could have some impact, but it's the wrong behavior for a time like this. Reason being, the time is late. Many are distracted. Your generous gift of a book will be easy to overlook and for too long. So instead, he says, make it a face-to-face conversation. He says, I'd have a 15 to 20 minute conversation with that person and page through Face Masks Hurt Kids, that's the book that Alan's written with him, inviting him to have a look at the parts most meaningful to you. Now he says, I believe that would be the most effective way to gift the book to people who you think are close to you but not acting courageously. That's a warm, high contact way to give a meaningful collection of information. And then after a week, follow up with them to see if they've had a chance to look at the book or to ask what parts they've read so far. Now, this teacher was saying, well, maybe I'll just mail it to, to the whole school board, mail it to all of my uh, lawmakers. He says, if you wanted to do a mass blast of books, many of them would likely sit on shelves or just be given away to staffers if there's not a personal touch attached to it. Some will read them. So he says this mass mailing may have an impact, but it won't be the biggest impact. One of the biggest problems right now is the inability Americans have developed almost universally to have meaningful, honest, civil face-to-face conversations, especially with those uh, people with whom they do not entirely disagree, or do not entirely agree, rather. So he says the approach that I describe here cuts to the heart of the problem and will leave you a more impactful visitor than the last hundred or even thousand unknown visitors who've walked through that door. Also useful may be doctors, nurses, dentists, teachers, principals, staffers, business owners, or anyone in positions of authority who you know personally. He says, clearly, you want to push this effort beyond the people you personally know. That's admirable, and it's needed. So here's here's an approach that he says works well in this situation and in general. He says, I want to tell you something you don't know about your local health official or the members of your local county board and the members of your school board. Not one of them has been approached for a calm face-to-face conversation about the harm of face masks, masks rather backed up with authoritative science. <clears throat> you know what they've had instead? 
People yelling at them from podiums at public meetings. Yelling at public meetings can be a helpful inspiration to the troops on your side, and it can be a potent muscle flexor to intimidate the opposition. But it's not likely to change a man's heart. I mean, does that, that makes sense, right? And he says, we've accepted two losing propositions. The first one is they are all corrupt. The second one is they won't listen. Now, Alan Stevo says, look, there are corrupt politicians and there are deaf politicians. But the closer you get to the local level, the less true that is. So the more time you spend with politicians, the less true you realize that is. They each have their own motivations. But many of them continue to have a conscience and have the ability to do good when convinced that doing good is within their power. Now, he says there are plenty of corrupt officials, but it's often out of naivete or a lack of initiative that one accepts that all are irredeemably corrupt and that change is impossible. This simply is not my experience. And he says, the harder I work and the more experience I add to the decades of experience I already have, the more I recognize that. So he says, I'm going to say it again. Literally, no one is talking to them. And the efforts to talk to them are once or twice, and then the person gives up. That's not going to work. So he says, I would say that one or two visits work so poorly it doesn't even count. And he says, in California, where this teacher lives, that's especially true. And conversations like this are especially necessary. Now, from here, he talks about uh, the Ralph Brown Act, which is an open meeting law that was once very, very powerful. But during corona communism... California Governor Gavin Newsom illegally gutted the Brown Act by executive order. The state legislature in September of 2021 made it made, finally made that gutting legitimate by passing legislation before their recess for the year. For literally 18 months, an illegal gutting of this powerful tool of the citizen was allowed to stand with very little pushback. But truly, that's neither here nor there. He says, though made considerably weaker since September 2021, the Brown Act remains a powerful tool for the citizen. And there's one reason above all that the Brown Act really empowers citizen activists, and that is public officials can't talk about official business outside of public meetings. And he goes into the reasons why. So he talks about uh, nine different suggestions. I think it's nine. Yeah of how to how to work with your public officials, like school board members and so forth. But here's the key. He says you need to always be looking to help others. When you step forward to communicate the things that you believe, you should be always checking in about your values and your motivations, never with a controlling spirit, never with a corrupting spirit, never with a spirit of vengeance, always seeking to uncover and communicate truth, to act upon your values, and to approach this with a contrite heart, though you may appear bold to the outside world. Approach this opportunity prayerfully, he says, with the right heart. Continue your efforts diligently and unceasingly, and your efforts will be good efforts for you and the people around you. But I love how he encourages you, treat that other person like a human being. Oh, I've seen people who just get so fired up. And, you know, when you come at a legislator or a school board member like that, as if you are the enemy and I'm here to destroy you, even if they might have been sympathetic, you've now put them on the defensive and slammed the door shut on any possible way of making that connection. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. I am so happy to have them on board as a sponsor. And, and I have such great news for those of you who are into, for instance, long arm quilting. Now, I know all the manly men are like, well, you know, I try to keep that under wraps. But no, it's a very legitimate hobby. And you would not believe the sewing technology that is available today. Well, Sewing and Quilting Center will not only sell you those top machines, like Brother, Baby Lock, and Genome, but they also teach classes. In fact, when you buy a machine from them, the the machines come with a free class on how to use the machine. In fact, those classes never expire. So if you want to take the class again, if you forget or you just want to refresh your course, that is always an option. And they have some wonderful events taking place during their big handy quilter event this month. Great people, teachers that can show you how to use your sewing machine, your serger, your long-arm quilting machine, your embroidery machine to its highest use. Click the link in the show notes for SewingQuiltingCenter.com. You can go to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Either one will get you there. But tell them thanks for being a sponsor. So in the last couple of segments, we talked a little bit about Alan Stevo, and I have deep respect for him. I mildly disagree with his take that, well, if you are moving away from an area, you know, you're running from something in yourself rather than standing and and fighting, you know, to the very end, you know, in in that locale. I guess that could be the case. In some cases, it it might be. People are pulling a Jonah, right? I don't want to go preach to the people of Nineveh. I'm out of here. And away they go. On the other hand, I think that there are just a few remaining islands of freedom And I don't fault people, particularly those who are still um, new to the idea of claiming their freedom and their rights as a free individual from recognizing that voting with your feet is a very legitimate way to, to uh, to make your will known. I've got an interesting article here from Annie Holmquist. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Why the current flight to small towns may save America. Now, this is something that I myself did here in the last year. And uh, as much as I would like to tell you, yes, it was uh, my decision was entirely trying to get away from, you know, the the control of these evil politicians. I wish it was that simple, but but it really wasn't. And I and I don't say this lightly, but I'm a big believer in uh, if if you really want to, to find direction in life, I think you should take it to God and you should ask God. And I'm not shy about saying I felt like what God wanted me to do, and I think I felt was clearly communicated to me, was it's time to take your family and it's time to move. And there were specific reasons that were attached to that, which are, are now becoming very apparent. Part of that was to be close to family, specifically aging parents. I'm very grateful that I acted on that knowledge. But it's a very individual thing. So I'm not saying what was right for me is going to be right for you. I'm just saying, take it to your creator. You're not going to go wrong. 
Here's what Annie Holmquist says about why the current flight to small towns may save America. She says, a friend of mine decided to shake the dust of the cities off his feet last year and migrate to a more rural area. Now, reflecting on the move, he seemed surprised at how much he was enjoying the change. She says, my takeaway from our conversation was that his life was fresh and new now that he has left the problems of the city. And having a community of reasonable people to live amongst wasn't so bad either. Now, she says, my friend isn't the only one who made such a change in the last year or so. Minnesota Public Radio highlighted the trend in a recent story titled, Ready for a Change? Couples Go All In on Small Town Life. And the article describes how James and Katrina Ball uprooted their children from the Cayman Islands to settle in the small Minnesotan town of Battle Lake at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic so they could be near Katrina's parents. Not intending to stay for the long haul, they still find themselves living there, not only surviving, but thriving in their new community. And while it was once the norm for small communities to empty out as their young people moved to the cities for bigger opportunities, it seems a reverse flight is beginning to take place. Slowly, perhaps, but definite nonetheless. And while some may see this as regression, it's, actual pro- it's actually progress. For a return to the local, rural community will eventually bring restored freedom and virtue to America's citizens. Annie Holmquist says those who move say they love the connected feeling that a small community brings. Mentioning the fall festival that Katrina helped organize, the Balls expressed their surprise at how helpful and participatory everyone was. Quote, I just went and walked down to the businesses and everyone was like, yeah, we'll support you. What do you need? Katrina recalled. James has been amazed at how much work volunteers put into the community. But he says in a small town, it can be easier to get things done because you see city officials at the coffee shop. And it seems everyone in town is connected. It's just so much more approachable, and it feels like in a small town, you can do anything if you've got the stamina, really, he said. So, in other words, the couple appreciate the freedom, support, tight-knit nature and comfort of life in a small town. And while the Ball family likely don't realize it, it's these very things that are the root of a healthy society. Robert Nisbet noted this in his classic work, Quest for the Community or Quest for Community, rather. The Family, Religious Association, and Local Community, wrote Nisbet, these, conservatives insisted, cannot be regarded as the external products of man's thought and behavior. They are essentially prior to the individual and are the indispensable supports of belief and conduct. When such supports are gone, he says we shouldn't be surprised to see individuals believe only in their own truth and behave in any depraved way they choose. Now, Nisbet elaborates, release man from the context of community and you get not freedom and rights, but intolerable aloneness and subjection to demonic fears and passions. Society, Burke wrote in a celebrated line, is a partnership of the dead, the living, and the unborn. Mutilate the roots of society and tradition, and the result must inevitably be the isolation of a generation from its heritage, the isolation of individuals from their fellow men and the creation of the sprawling, faceless masses. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says Americans are lost, lonely, adrift. Almost all of us can sense that without even looking at statistics. But is it possible such a problem could be reversed by more people fleeing the cities and settling down in small communities? Here people can't blend into the background as much. They are a name instead of a faceless being. 
carried along with the crowd of good, upright folks striving to follow God, work hard, raise their family right, and support those around them with care and encouragement. She says America won't survive without turning away from the rootless and toward the rooted. And if we're serious about helping that about-face happen, maybe it's time to find a small community, settle down, and start the process of becoming more than a lonely automaton in a massive urban arena. Yeah, it's probably just my old age talking, but uh, my relocation to a more rural area has actually been one of the greatest uh, upgrades in life that I can remember. And I don't want to make it sound like because everywhere else that just sucked. Uh, my family, I, it turns out, to, we're, we're pretty adaptable beings. And everywhere that we have, have settled, even for a shorter period of time, has turned out to be not just, you know, tolerable, but actually great. I think of my time in St. George and in Cedar City and even in Lehigh. And I, I just, very different settings, every single one of them. But I learned to adapt. And I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to, to be in a place where I have a little, uh, little slower pace of life. There's, a, there's some inconveniences that come with this. We just had some major snowstorms in the last few weeks that have made, uh, you know, getting out and about and getting the kids to school and, you know, to the grocery store and everything. It can be a little bit inconvenient, especially when you've got, you know, blowing and drifting snow and things like this. But everywhere that we've lived, we've worked to be a part of the community. And that doesn't mean to become part of the power structure necessarily, though for some people it might. You know, we're all different individuals. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses, different things that motivate us. But I do love those people who have that yearning for freedom that's strong enough, they would be willing to vote with their feet to pack up, if necessary, and go somewhere where that can be realized. You're not going to find a perfectly free place right now. I don't think there's anywhere in the world that you can go that's not, uh, you know, under somebody's jurisdiction and subject to some kind of external control. But clearly there are some places that are better than others. And, uh, you know, nothing says that louder than the incredible exodus of people that are moving away from places like Illinois, places like California, places like New York, and finding, well, whatever it is they're looking for on those little islands of freedom. So, if that's what's drawing you, I'd say go. Go forth and build. Or better yet, just start a little island of freedom right where you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to subscribe to the show notes, here's how you can do so. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. There is a subscribe button. And every day that I do the program, I publish show notes. All you have to do is give me your email. I will not sell it to other parties. I'm not here to... You know, create a mass data database of, of people that we will now incessantly pummel with advertisements and free offers. But 
If you'd like to see the show notes on a daily basis, I'll gladly drop them in your inbox first thing in the morning. All right, let's let's talk about one of the more unpleasant truths that has become very apparent for anyone paying attention over this last couple of years. And it's this. A very large segment of the public has been trained to be outraged by rule breakers rather than tyrannical rules. Got a great article here from Joanna Williams writing for, I believe this is uh, spikedonline.com. And Joanna wonders why it took the media so long to acknowledge the ongoing destruction of lockdowns. And part of it has to do with that that idea that, well, because we are trained to see the rule breakers as the real problem rather than unreasonable and even destructive rules. Now, keep in mind, this is, this is uh, coming from the U.K., but the principle applies perfectly no matter where. She says, this week's big news was that yet another Downing Street party, sorry, work event, took place during lockdown that's got people looking back at what they were up to on 20 May of 2020. The Prime Minister's principal private secretary might have been busy inviting staff to bring your own booze to the number 10 garden in order to make the most of the lovely weather. But the most, uh, mo- the most the rest of us had to look forward to was the prospect of meeting one friend on a park bench or cherish the memory of the local McDonald's drive through reopening. And of course, many people could not even enjoy these small pleasures. Throughout spring 2020, we were barred from visiting dying relatives in hospitals and care homes. Pregnant women had to endure labor without their partners by their side. Funerals were limited to just a handful of socially distanced mourners. Schools were closed, playgrounds were locked, and the lovely weather only added to the misery of those trapped in cramped houses without gardens. So if nothing else, she says the past few days provided a timely reminder of the utter inhumanity of lockdown. But today's newspaper, she says, reflect the nation's anger with the prime minister. But as we look back to what we were all doing nearly two years ago, it's worth reflecting on what was making national news back then. Clearly, no journalists were spilling tea on the Downing Street parties. Although given invites were mailed to over 100 guests, it's hard to imagine that no one in the media caught wind of what was going on. Instead, the media was focusing on various other people who had been found to have broken lockdown rules. From public figures to ordinary members of the public. So, May 2020 kicked off with fury at VE Day crowds for doing non-socially distanced conga lines in street parties across the country. Then there was the seemingly never-ending outrage at Dominic Cummings for driving from London to Durham after his wife tested positive for coronavirus and for his now infamous journey to Barnard Castle, allegedly to test his eyesight. Much as many may wish to deny it now, there were also concerns that plans to reopen primary schools the following month, and even then, only for certain year groups, were rushed and premature, and the month rounded off with anger at the crowds flocking to beaches to sunbathe. Now, she says, back then, what was certainly not present on newspaper front pages, or in many opinion pieces, pieces rather, was anger at the lockdown rules. Not one political correspondent ever stood up in a Downing Street press briefing and demanded to know whether the restrictions we were being asked to live under were humane, proportionate, or even evidence-based. No one asked Boris Johnson to explain the reasoning behind the hoops we were meant to jump through. 
In May 2020, a few mainstream, few mainstream commentators asked why the government was pushing through lockdown restrictions without any parliamentary scrutiny. And when it was announced that fines for breaching lockdown rules were to be doubled, most in the media simply nodded along. And when toward the end of, towards the end of May, London's major hospitals did not record a single death over a 48-hour period, there was only scant coverage. Now, Joanna Williams says in May 2020, the political and media classes were not angry with the lockdown rules. They were angry with lockdown rule breakers. Almost to a man, they were solely preoccupied with the rules and making sure they were adhered to. As Owen Jones wrote at the time, millions of people are making unprecedented sacrifices. They expect those rules to be followed by everybody. And the same group of people are now busy stoking outrage at Boris Johnson and his brazen assumption that lockdown rules only applied to the little people. Today, just as two years ago, their anger serves a purpose. For some, like the opposition MPs, who are members of parliament rather, who are now only speaking up about the cruelty of lockdown, directing anger at Downing Street parties allows them to distance themselves from the lockdown itself. As for the devastating impact of closing schools and youth clubs... And preventing people from seeing general practitioners or seeing or keeping relatives out of care homes comes to light. Some former lockdown enthusiasts are looking to distance themselves from the very policies they not only supported, but also called for. And she says their expressions of anger toward Boris Johnson represent a cowardly refusal to take ownership of their own past arguments. But there's something worse here than all the cowardice. And that's all those who look at the latest Downing Street party saga and still maintain that the biggest problem we face is not the rules, but the rule breakers. Astonishingly, many clinged on to the view that Johnson's biggest crime was attending a party, not forbidding an entire nation from doing the same. The Guardian complains that Downing Street was treating the lockdown rules that Mr. Johnson had set with contempt. And Joanna Williams says that's perfectly true, but the rules were worthy of contempt. The problem, as Tom Slater notes on Spiked, is that both Johnson and the rules held people in contempt. So Joanna Williams says if the party's over for Boris and Kerry, then the game should also be up for the media lockdown lovers who never challenged the inhumane restrictions and only ever demanded the government go further in shutting down society. We need to do more than berate the Prime Minister for what happened to British society over the past couple of years. Joanna Williams says we must hold the entire political and media class to account for their role in bringing about and maintaining lockdown, whether they attended the rule-breaking parties or not. I guess I'm seeing in this, uh, there's there's a pretty good self-test that can be administered here. And that is, you know, are you more concerned? When someone doesn't follow some arbitrary rule, well, everyone else has to. Therefore, you know, we have to do it too. I I hear this a lot, and I'll just use this as an example. People saying, you know what we need to do? We need to tax the churches, man. Churches ain't paying taxes. They need to pay taxes just like everybody else. What's wrong with that picture? See, it seems to me that a person who understands the proper role of government, and a person who understands the the proper role of religion within a society would, would more likely be advocating for, hey, 
Why don't we make everybody tax exempt? Oh, I know. the Who's going to pay for all the great things that the state is doing for us and to us? Well, that's tempting. But maybe we just try to survive without all those blessings from the political class. What do you think? There are some things the state legitimately can and should do that contribute to the protection of our God-given rights. But there's an awful lot the state's engaged in that has nothing to do with that and everything to do with just perpetuating its own growth and its own control. And and that doesn't make our lives better. It makes them more complicated. It makes them more expensive. It makes them more difficult. So why do people by default think that, well, we're all miserable because we're being taxed, so therefore churches ought to be miserable too? It's the old crabs in a bucket analogy, right? One crab starts to crawl out of the bucket, the other crabs will reach up and pull them right back in. Look, I'm not talking about having some radical shift in your thinking, but what if we were more concerned about liberty for everybody and less concerned with, you know, I'm miserable, so everybody ought to be as miserable as I am? Because I really think that's what it comes down to for a lot of people. They, They just... It's not so much, you know, a matter of, you know, I want to stand for what's right is I want to make sure everybody is at least as miserable as I am. But what if, just humor me for a moment on this, what if someone has actually found a better way to live? Why not celebrate that? Why not emulate them and support what they're doing rather than uh, insist that they be, you know, brought back and subdued and made to wear the same kind of leash and collar that you're wearing? All right, a few things to ponder as I saddle up and ride off into the sunset. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Show some love to my sponsors. This is The Brian Hyde Show.